And uh, if you kind of go from Hebrews to James, you'll get to First Peter. Be great. If everybody could come on in, that'd be great. We'll close these doors too. It'd be awesome. Good deal. Let's start this thing. Well, uh, hundreds of thousands of people are descending uh, these next two weeks upon a remote place on the northeast side of the Black Sea, uh, Sochi, uh, a place that really uh, didn't become a, a town and a city until uh, the uh, early 20th century when Stalin made it his uh, vacation place of Russia, and uh, then uh, later the Russian um, government tried to make it uh, pumped money into Sochi at a great amount to make this resort town uh, an Olympic uh, location. And uh, for two weeks, uh, this is going to be the home for journalists, uh, for many athletes, for tourists, for people around the world. And they will be away from home, sojourners, strangers in a very strange place. Uh, maybe some of you have heard some of the horror stories over the past two weeks, uh, like um, open manholes around Sochi Village, stray dogs um, are running around town, uh, brown water uh, when you uh, are at the hotels, um, hotel doors locking at random times and athletes busting them down, uh, like one Bob Sledder did from the United States. But at the same time, of all those horror stories, there's also been some major positives uh, that people have seen by being in Sochi. 50 cent beer, um, sour cream served in very large bowls at almost every meal. That seems to be a big thing. It's like the condiment of, of Russia. Um, and a, a people that is very, very friendly and have come out of their way to welcome uh, the world uh, to Sochi. But... Again, it, you can feel like a stranger, uh, especially if you're an American, uh, dealing with Russian-American relations at the moment. You can imagine maybe the tension that Americans sometimes feel uh, for uh, the tension that goes on with Russia and the United States. But in the midst of that strange land, they're still part of a team. They're still part of something larger than themselves. They can still walk with each other and say, we're part of the United States, or we're part of Canada, there's still a sense of belonging and community, even when they are far away from home. Well, 2,000 years ago, there was a people that also felt like they were strangers in a place not very far from Sochi. In fact, just across the Black Sea is Turkey, modern-day Turkey, back then Asia Minor. And right there in northern Turkey... There had become people that had become strangers in that land, exiles, pilgrims, that had been sent away to this foreign land of northern Turkey. And more than just bad internet connections, <laughs> they faced social ostracism, persecution, and an introduction to a whole new way of life that they had not known before. How would this group of people, these strangers, these pilgrims, how would they adjust? Where would they find their hope? 
where would they find their identity in being so far away from home? This is the question that will kind of permeate all of 1 Peter. And this morning I want to argue this to you. That that idea of strangeness and otherworldliness and feeling like a pilgrim isn't just true for athletes in Sochi or these group of people in northern Turkey, but it's also true for us. You see, all of us have been placed in a strange world. But at the same time, we've all been called and picked to be in a special community or a team. One that gives us an identity that is stronger than any social discomfort, societal structures, or any persecution. We're in a strange world, but we've still been called to a greater community that can help us endure all the social ostracism, discomfort, structures, and persecution that this world might offer. So let's look together and see in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, what this is going to be all about and this group of people. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is Your Word. And uh, I pray that even a greeting, even a short introduction, can speak to us. That we too can see that we are also in this story. That not only are they exiles, but we are exiles too. Not only are they elect, but we are too. God, let this word um, change us and transform us. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, welcome again. We are starting a new book, the book of First Peter. We'll be going through it all this winter and then in the spring, and we'll end uh, right when summer kicks off again. And uh, we, uh, in this series, will be seeing many fun things as we go through First Peter, and we'll also be going through Second Peter too. And uh, we are going to see in this book uh, what many have said, this book is the most condensed book in the New Testament that tells us about what the Christian faith is all about and how you're supposed to live out the Christian faith. Again, 1 Peter, the most condensed book of the New Testament to tell us about what it's like to live as a Christian and what it means to do it in society. I kind of like to think of it as kind of the resume of the Christian world. You know, if you want to know what it's like, uh, what kind of resume you need to be a Christian, First Peter gives it to you. You know, your identity, where you went to school, what things you've done. This is it. First Peter shows it to you. Some of you might be asking, how can this guy talk for this long about two verses? Okay, um, uh, this is going to be short and sweet, right? Um, well, I think these, this introduction and this greeting is very rich. And 
it can actually reveal a lot to us of how we're supposed to look at this book of 1 Peter and what grid we're going to go through and seeing the stories and the ways to live. It tells us who wrote it, to who it was for, and for what purpose. And if we have a better understanding of those things, we'll then have a better understanding of the book. It would be like finding a love letter, maybe in your attic, written long, long time ago, somewhere, and you read it and you go, man, that is awesome, that's rich. Look at that, the love that they had um, for each other and what they wrote to each other. And then they might mention certain places like, oh, this park or maybe this date. Now, if you didn't know what happened at that park or what happened on that date, you could only have a little bit of understanding of the love that these people had for each other. But when you start to understand that maybe they had their first date at that park, or maybe on that date was when they, he proposed to her, or whatever it might be, it brings some more richness to the letter. In the same way, in understanding who this letter is written to, by whom, and for what purpose, we will get a better sense and a richness to the letter of 1 Peter. Does that sound good? Okay. So let's look together, shall we? Let's look first in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Well, what is an apostle? It means a sent one. They carried the message of the good news. And specifically, apostles at that time were people that knew Jesus, his life, and spoke of the good news of his message of the kingdom and then conveyed it to others. And we have a first-hand look at Peter, one very, very close to Jesus. Uh, we went through the book of Mark, right? And the book of Mark uh, was written by a companion of Peter. And many scholars believe that it's basically Peter telling his stories of um, going with Jesus as a disciple. And in Mark, it tells of these adventures of Peter and the disciples. And what did we learn in Mark about uh, the person of Peter? Pretty messed up individual. <laughs> Brash. Uh, says things that are inappropriate. Um, says he's going to do things and doesn't follow through. Uh, when he faces persecution for the first time, really uh, deftly, what does he do? He takes it? No, he runs the other way. But then at the end, we see that Jesus still says, Peter, I want you to tell others about me. I want you to be a shepherd to the church, a leader in the church. And so what we have is Peter back then, messed up individual, and now we fast forward to him after that calling, after Pentecost, receiving the Spirit, experiencing all these things. Now we see Peter matured, telling others about persecution, and telling them the experiences he's had himself. What do we know about Peter? Well, we know this, that ten years after Pentecost, that's after Christ's ascension and the Spirit coming upon the disciples, ten years after that, um, Peter was jailed in Jerusalem. In Acts, it tells us that. And actually, uh, one of the other people that jailed with him actually was executed. And the next day, they say that Peter would have been executed himself, but an angel comes and frees Peter from jail. And what's interesting is, that's only halfway through the book of Acts, which is kind of a history of the early church. What happened was, Peter disappears after that. 
You don't see him in the book of Acts anymore. And then you wonder, what has happened to this dude? Where has he gone? And we only get tidbits in other places in other books like the epistle of what's happened to Peter. So a lot of this is conjecture. But we can know a few things. One thing we know is this, that Peter wrote this book from Rome. Another thing we know is that uh, 20 years after his jailing, he was executed by Nero in Rome. So in the period of him escaping from Jerusalem to then being executed in Rome, what was going on in Peter's life? And many scholars and contemporaries believe that what Peter was doing is he was being a missionary to different places around the world, a leader. And one of his hubs was actually Rome. And that is why he writes this book showing it, the book of 1 Peter, from Rome. But, who is he then writing this book to? Okay? Okay, I know I'm giving a lot of history. For all of you that don't like history, you might check out. But it's going to get interesting, okay? So, just deal with the history, okay? It's good stuff, okay? So, here we have this. To those who are elect exiles. And so, what this word elect is, is it can be interpreted as strangers, exiles, foreigners, aliens, people that are in a strange place. Who are these people? Well, we know this, that they're in these regions of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are locations in central and northern Turkey, modern-day central and northern Turkey. And we also know this, they're regions that were not um, evangelized by the Apostle Paul. In fact, they were specific regions that were different than what Paul had been evangelizing in southern Turkey So the question is, how did these Christians, how did the church get there? We know that in Turkey in that time, there were about 4 million people. And out of that 4 million people, 300,000 of those people were Jews. And there were only about 5,000 Christians. How did a movement that just started about a decade or two decades earlier start having these many people in the location of Turkey. Well, this is what happened. The Roman Empire, Emperor in 40 and in the 50s of AD was Claudius. And Claudius really wanted to secure parts of the Roman Empire and make them greater strongholds. So what would happen was Claudius would send people from Rome that were veterans of wars or people from Rome that wanted more land, to locations like Turkey, 2,000 miles away, because it was this kind of traveling place in between Europe and Asia. So it was strategic militarily, culturally, and also economically. So to secure those roads, to secure those cities, to evangelize the Roman Empire, he would send those people to northern Turkey. And we see specifically in edicts of Claudius that these locations that are mentioned in 1 Peter are the exact places that he sent people. Okay? The same that Peter mentions these locations are the same places Claudius sent people. But you know what? He didn't just send people that wanted more land 
and people that were veterans. He also sent people that were a pain in his neck. <laughs> people that were um, kind of rabble-rousers in Rome. We know this through history in Acts 18, that something happened in, from 45 to 50 A.D., and that's that Christians were being a nuisance in Rome because they were evangelizing, street preaching, because they were doing things that were culturally unacceptable. They were saying Rome was doing things that were culturally unacceptable. Now, Claudius had had enough. So he sent what he said were just Jews of a certain sect because Christians didn't have their own name yet. He sent these Jews that follow Christos out to Asia Minor. Get out of Rome. Get out of town. I'm sending you 2,000 miles away so I don't have to deal with you anymore. Priscilla and Aquila were one of those exact people that's mentioned in Acts 18, one of the early followers of Christ, that they had to go there too. So, you have to understand that Peter has now probably went with them because he was in Rome, went to that place, spent time with them as they started the early church, then went back to Rome later on when Claudius was dead, and then wrote this letter back to them about 10 to 20 years after they had settled in northern Turkey to say, I want to give you encouragement. I want to speak to you. So you can understand the kind of things that he's going to be talking about. These are the, think about it. <laughs> think about being sent 2,000 miles away from your homeland uh, to a place where people um, really don't want you because they um, they. They are less Roman citizens than citizens of their own land. And one, they don't want the Romans there. Two, they don't want a sect that the Romans kicked out there. And you can see it would be a difficult situation. The kind of things that they would face is social ostracism, isolation, different ways of life, kind of opposition to the ways that they were living as Christians, a foreignness of Christianity, there's only a few thousand of you that, among all these different people, you would feel strange. And you would also, in the midst of that, have doubts. Does God really provide for me? Is he really reliable? Are his promises true? You see, this book is written to both literal exiles and to them spiritually as exiles. He's saying, yes, you people in this location, you have been strangers and exiles in this land. But this letter is not only for you. This letter can cycle throughout the Christian world, knowing that all of us are strangers in this world spiritually, because we will live in a place that is different than what this world is supposed to be. Some of you might be doubting me now. Uh, really? I'm, I'm glad I'm not these people. I, I don't see how it could um, resonate with these kind of people. I, I don't live 2,000 miles away from home. Um, I never have feelings of isolation. Um, I never feel like the culture sometimes opposes the way that I want to live. I never have doubts that God is reliable <laughs> and his promises are true. Right? None of, us, none of you guys deal with that? Any of you guys? 
Are we? Are we exiles ourselves? Does this book speak to us? Why would you even preach on this book? Does it say something to us as Wisconsinites? I think so. I think so because some of us have moved here. (laughs) Some of us do feel those kind of ways. Let me take it piece by piece. Do we feel alone? Do we feel isolated? I think isolation and loneliness is one of the major problems in the United States today. I just want to point out a few things to you. There is a book written by Thomas Fleming. It's a book called The Morality of Everyday Life. And he makes this comment about globalization that now I can talk to anyone around the world at any time. I can Facebook someone. I can tweet someone. I can see someone on a screen. I can be connected at any time with anyone, the global community. And he says this about it. If everyone in the world is as dear to me as my next door neighbor, like the global community says, I might be tempted to treat my neighbor as a complete stranger. <laughs> Let me illustrate it to you. Philip Seymour Hoffman died these last weeks and uh, with an overdose of drugs. And uh, there was an outpouring of, of love for Philip Seymour Hoffman. And people throughout the United States went to his home and dropped off flowers and cards. And they were interviewed. And people said, he touched me. Philip Seymour Hoffman, I feel like I knew him. Because through his movies, I, he was he just spoke to me in a powerful way. At the same time, His neighbors, his literal neighbors on the street were coming out seeing what was happening. And this is what they were telling journalists. I never knew he lived there. I never knew he lived next door at all. Do you see the irony? That we feel like we can know someone through a movie, through connections, through emails or Facebook or whatever it might be. But do we even know who lives next door to us? I could give you tons of statistics about the level of loneliness and isolation that people feel in the United States and how it's increased year after year. We are alone. We do feel disconnected. We feel like strangers and exiles, even in a place where we are so connected. How can you say we're exiles? How can you say we're like these people? Look, they live in a place that there's a total different way to live life. They were living among pagans, among those that had a sexual ethic that was crazy, among those that had no idea about what Christianity was. We don't live in that kind of context anymore. Here, I think then, um, the Jews and the Christians living among the Gentiles of Asia Minor there were clear demarcations and clear lines about what morality was. Christians and Jews lived one way. The Gentiles and pagans, I'm not using pagan in a pejorative way, the pagans, that's how they believed in pagan gods, they lived a different way. There was a clear line. I think it might have been easier to live in a place where that line was clear than it is in our age today. Um, I think the line is very, very blurred in the United States. I think it's blurred because the prevalence of individualism. 
that says, I can live any way I want to. And if it's good for me, don't tell me how I should live my life. And so the line just becomes kind of erased. That you can actually live one way among your Christian friends or the church and live a different way at work and around others. You can live around your family a certain way and live a different way when you go back home. It's just, it's okay to live with that mixture and compartmentalization and also the judgment of living certain ways. How dare you judge me to live this way or that way? So again, living in oppositional culture. Lastly, how can you say we are exiles like that? They had hardly any churches. There might have been just one church in town. Here we live in a place like Appleton where churches dot this place like crazy. There are churches all over the place. How can you say we're exiles and strangers when the church is so prevalent today? The Telegraph, a uh, London newspaper, recently came over to the United States to interview what's going on in religion in the United States. And they went to the South and to the Midwest, and they were finding that many um, atheist groups are forming in the Midwest and the South, um, and uh, many people are starting to identify in these kind of agnostic or atheist groups. And they interviewed one man and said, oh, why, you know, it seems like your, your groups are still very, very small. Why are they so small? And they interviewed this 22-year-old young man, and he said this about his atheism. He said, you know, I find that most of my friends, it's just easier to go along with religion in the Midwest and in the South. That if you actually bolt it and you say that you have doubts about God or his existence or who he is, you're just kind of left out in the cold. The stakes are high. Do I want to be supported by my friends and family or am I going to risk being kicked out of clubs and organizations? It is tempting to avoid the issue altogether. But he said this, I would put 20 to 30% of my friends in that category where they just go along with emotions rather than admit they have no belief in God whatsoever. You might be surprised to know this, that Barna recently came out with a statistic about us in Appleton in Green Bay. Did you know that Barna said that we are one of the top cities in the United States as being a post-Christian location. What? How can Barna say such a thing? Higher than Madison? Higher than Washington, D.C.? Higher than lots of cities around the United States? Appleton, Wisconsin. Okay? This is what they found. They interviewed people and asked them questions more than just whether they go to church on Sunday. They asked them questions like this. Have you ever made a commitment to Jesus? Do you believe the Bible is actually true? Have you prayed in the last year? 50% of people in Appleton and Green Bay said they did not do those things. 50%. Now, they might say they go to church, but half of them will not agree with those kind of statements. You know, I think, I'm not bashing other churches or anything like that. What I'm trying to say, there is a culture in Appleton, in the Fox Cities, that 
I can just go along with emotions and the culture of faith. That my parents did it, now I'll do it. That everyone else is doing it, so I'll do it too. I'll show up to church when I need to. I'll say the right buzzwords. I'll do the right things. I'll genuflex for when, when you want me to. But the truth is, behind it are doubts. Behind it is the idea that how can I reconcile what is going on in my life with a God actually being there? That people have never actually vented those questions. That people have never actually probed them. That they've come to the place where they just, they don't believe. But they go along with the Christian motions anyway. Are we exiles? Are we strangers in a strange land like these people? I think so. And this is why I think this book can speak to us so well. Because in this book, Peter is going to ask these questions and answer these questions for the people there. How am I supposed to live in this kind of environment? How am I supposed to engage society? What things am I supposed to accept? What things am I not supposed to accept? How do I talk to my friends and my coworkers? How do I live my marriage out? How do all these things happen? And Peter is going to answer these questions through this book. He's also going to try to answer many of the problems that you'll have. Like, I feel isolated. I feel persecuted. Not persecuted in the sense of, I mean, this isn't Nero's time where people were being put into the arenas and fed to lions and executed. And No, that wasn't happening at this time. The persecution that these people were facing was a persecution of social discomfort. I'm in a place that is foreign and hard to live in. And I don't know how to live here. I feel persecuted here. I think that is more common to what we're doing today than we realize. And so the question is, how is God real when I feel isolated and persecuted in my life? And these are the kind of questions that Peter is going to answer. And what kind of character does the church have and do people have in the midst of the suffering and persecution that they're facing? And I think these are good questions for a small church plant. And who are we? Who are we on the stage? We're, we're small peanuts, right? But we're a covenant community. A community that faces these things in the Fox Cities. How are we supposed to act? How are we supposed to be? Can we make a difference in this community at all? And I think First Peter can answer some of that. But let's see how he begins it and gives comfort right away to these exiles and these strangers. Here we go. It's one word. Are you ready? To those who are elect. Elect exiles. Just next to each other. What a crazy juxtaposition to put these two words together. Okay, one, you're telling me I'm a stranger, I'm a foreigner, I'm in a place that's hard and difficult to live in, and then next to it you say, I am called out, that I am special, that I am unique, that I have a purpose and a plan. How can you say I'm both a stranger 
And then say at the same time that I have a call and a purpose and a reason for being here. How can you say both the things at the same time? That's a crazy parallel and juxtaposition together. Can I answer it for you? Is anyone intrigued? Maybe someone? Okay, here we go. So let's answer it, okay? This word, elect and calling, has it back to Israel that Israel was a nation that was called out, that was elect. That God says, I made a promise and a covenant with you to love you, to not abandon you, to be with you. And now Peter is saying, I am doing the same, I'm saying the same thing is true of you, small group of people in northern Asia, in northern Turkey. And this is what he does. He tries to give them encouragement in the sense of still being strangers and exiles that they are called out. So hear me, please. It says elect, okay? And then he modifies that word calling with this in verse 2. Verse 2, follow along with me. You are called out, you are elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood. He uses the Trinity to modify that you are called. You are called by each member of the Trinity. In theological terms, the reason he orders it Father, Spirit, Son is because it's ordered in what we call the Ordus Salutis, which is called the order of salvation. How does someone come into the covenant community? How does someone get saved? And this is what Peter is saying. You are saved first by God the Father, who does this. He calls you. He elects you. And then after that, He changes you by the Spirit. So you are regenerated. And then after that, you respond with faith to Jesus Christ and what He has done for you. God the Father calls. The Spirit regenerates. Jesus Christ is who we have faith in. So that is the order of salvation. How is that encouraging to people that are exiles and strangers in this time? How would that be encouraging to them at all? It's encouraging in this way. I am 2,000 miles away from home. I've been kicked out of Rome. I'm in a place I don't know. People don't want me here. I feel alone and isolated. What am I supposed to do? And in the midst of that, Peter says, God has called you. He has selected you for a purpose and for a reason. Even in the midst of what you're going through, there is still a purpose for you being there. I have taken the initiative in your situation. You know what I found? Um, I, I kind of found this, that when we analyze other people's situations in life and what they're going through, um, that many times we think their life is going better than they think it's going themselves when they're enduring it. And those that can't accept that God initiates and has a purpose and a plan, that he calls you out no matter what you're going through, you can feel very isolated and scared. The Olympics is my theme that I'm running through right, right now, right? So you've seen that through the service. So might as well use um, Olympic illustrations, right? Four years ago, um, there was a guy, his name was Jarrett Speedy Peterson. And Jarrett won a silver medal in aerial um, skiing. That's the one where you go up that huge jump and then you do all those tricks and land, right? 
You seen that one? Yeah, maybe. Okay. So he won the silver medal on this. Okay. This is just four years ago. Just a year ago, Jarrett committed suicide. How can someone go from a silver medal to the greatest in his sport to that place? The Washington Post wrote, wrote a very large article on Jarrett. And these are the things that they found. And it's really, people that knew him really well, the kind of things that Jarrett was dealing with. After Jarrett won the silver medal, he came home and he thought he was going to be in the money. He was going to be a superstar. He went right to Hollywood after Silver Mel to get TV commercials, spots. This was his golden ticket. But after a few months in L.A., he found that no one really wanted him. And then he started to deal with this idea. If, if being an aerial skier it was my identity and all I am, what am I supposed to do now? Who am I now? Do I have an identity? Do I have any purpose? And this was the question he asked to friends and family members, and it just spiraled him down and down and down. To know I haven't, he said, I have no identity after this. I have invested my whole life in getting to this place, and now it's over. Who am I now? To the place where he said, I have no purpose and reason for this life. That he took his own life. Now there's many reasons that people have su commit suicide. And I'm not going to say that that is the only reason. Many times it's medical, psychological. There's lots of purposes and reasons for that. But I'm saying that when we have an identity in Christ, we can find purpose and meaning. Some of you might say, you know, I... I'm never going for the gold medal, you know? I, I don't think anyone's trying their identities in finding a gold medal here. Anyone? Maybe? I don't know. But I think we do have our identity in other things, don't we? That my family's intact. That um, I, you know, I have a house. That, uh, you know, that I'm happy. Do you know what the saddest thing is? And I've experienced over the past two weeks talking to people, counseling them. When they lose that, someone in their family, when that goes wrong, they are crushed. Life has no meaning, no purpose. There's, God is not for me. He's against me. Because that's what God is supposed to do. He's supposed to give me a good family, a nice house, a good way to live. That is not what God is saying here, is it? You will be strangers. You will be exiles. You will be persecuted. But at the same time, you are elected and called by me. I love you. I have called you out. I have a purpose and a reason for what you're going through. Well, I got passionate, so it's got to be true, right? You know, that's uh, good. You're going to drive it home, okay? Well, let's move on, okay, right? The Spirit, sanctification, okay? We see this. It says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Um, sanctification is a word that many times people um, equate with um, growth in the spiritual life. You know, being sanctified is I'm growing in my relationship with God. Sanctification is used like that 
the majority of the time in the New Testament. But here it's not being used that way. Instead, sanctification is used in the way of being set apart and different. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, has set you apart, has made you different, has called you out for a reason. I find this very encouraging in our context. I have had the great ability to go around and talk to each of you about how you came to know Jesus. You should hear the stories, the different ways that people came to know the Lord. It's crazy, you know? You know, from people caring about Christ on the TV to people um, going to a camp when they were 16 to um, a neighbor coming and speaking to them to a college ministry to um, a crazy wide-eyed preacher speaking to them when they went to church with a friend when they were 11 years old. It's crazy how the Spirit has moved in different people. You know what I've also found is that those journeys look a lot different among different people. I see people walk away from church. People come back to church. I see people that are far away from the Lord. All these different things. And the great news about this is that this, the sanctification of the Spirit shows this. That even wherever you are, the Spirit will still set you apart. It will still move upon you. It will still work upon you wherever you might be in this journey of faith. You don't have to have it all together and be in this certain place to know that God is working upon you. That should give you encouragement for those that are around you, that maybe right now where you are dealing with in your own life, in your spiritual journey, that the Spirit can still move and set people apart. That maybe a friend that went to a camp when they're eight years old and committed their life to Christ, now that they're 45 years old and not have set a foot in the church in all that time, that the Spirit has still set them apart and might be moving upon them to do something in their life. That's good encouragement for a context where spiritual journeys, where people are going through, are up and down, up and down. Moving on. Lastly, you are called out for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. You know, this refers back to Exodus 24. And what would happen is Moses had the blood of the oxen and things like that. And you might think it might be crazy. But he used to dip um, and sprinkle the blood on the people. Yeah, that's so great. That's what we're, we're going to be doing that after church this week, okay? <laughs> Sprinkling blood on people. But it was to remind the people that they were in a covenant relationship with God. That God had promised them and loved them and cared for them. That they had been washed cleansed, you might think blood cleansing, but washing and cleansed by this, by that sacrifice. Now, see, Peter is using the illustration of Jesus as that sprinkling. And it really, I think, refers back to the book um, of Ezekiel. And it, in Ezekiel, it says the day will, this Ezekiel was written when people were a part of the diaspora, where people were separated in exile, literally in exile, the Jews. And said, the day will come, you people in exile. The day will come, you people that are strangers. That you obey with your hearts. That you will be washed with water. That you will obey not because of obligation, but because it comes from inside out. And that day now has come by Jesus Christ. The day has come where people will obey 
out of what He has done and His forgiveness. I was talking to a friend this week, and we both agreed about this fact. Religion is a horrible hobby. This is a horrible hobby. If you come to church because this is kind of a hobby for you and it's kind of what you do, I'm sorry for you. I just feel really bad. Because waking up on Sunday morning, it stinks. Okay, I just admit, I don't like doing it. Um, setting up chairs, not always the best thing. Giving money away that I'd rather keep myself sometimes for a service that really isn't that good at times. Not really cool. Music, which I is great, very talented people and stuff like that. But I could hear produced music that's a lot better. You know what? I could actually hear speakers that are a lot better too. This is a horrible hobby. If you're a part of the covenant community, a part of the church, because it's, you're going to get something out of it, <laughs> It's going to do something for you that it's part of being of the in crowd in our society. I'm, I'm sorry. Just give it time, I'd say. Because over time, you'll realize you probably don't want to be here out of that obligation. It's really not as cool as you think. And uh, it's, yeah, it's just not a good hobby to have. But the thing is, that is not what it's saying. In this passage, it's saying, being a part of the covenant community, part of the church, is not a hobby. Instead, it's a calling to be a part of something that you are a part of a world, a community, the way the world will actually be at some point in time. That you will no longer be strangers in this world. Instead, you'll be part of the kingdom in the way it should be. Examples is this. That you are called out, even in your imperfections by God, in the covenant community, to love one another and bear with one another. That the Spirit moves in you through the ups and downs of life situations, through people in this community dealing with death of family members, dealing with um, sadness they face in work, dealing with unemployment, dealing with hard things, that the Spirit has still called you and loves you. Being called by Christ himself, that is nothing that you have done, but instead only what he has done for you by the sprinkling of his blood upon you, that you have been washed away, that you can now be forgiven. You see, that kind of community gives us power and strength to navigate through the loneliness of this world, the persecution that this world gives, the sinning that people give against you, the sinning that we do to each other, because we have a source of life, we have the Creator that has called us out of being strangers into a new life, a new hope, a new eternal heavenly community that one day will wipe away the things that we see in this world to a world that will be perfect and made whole. the end, he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. A great word, grace, it really fits to that Christian message of something that you do not deserve, and peace to the Jewish message, the idea that having contentment even in the midst of sorrows and problems, 
merged together, it makes sense, especially when he's speaking to both Jews and Gentiles that are in this church. If you want to see an example of where may grace and peace be multiplied to you, my last Olympic illustration. How's that sound? Here we go. Last one. One of my favorite movies, right? Have I, I hope I haven't. I don't think I've given you this illustration before. Chariots of Fire, right? And you will see a comparison and contrast between someone that is a stranger and someone that's a part of a community. You see it in two athletes, Harold Abrams and Eric Little. Both Olympians in track in 1924 for Great Britain. One ran the 100 meter, Harold Abrams, and the other ran the 400. And Harold Abrams um, is a, a very poignant scene where he's, you know, getting his back rubbed out before he's going to run the big race. And he says to his friend how sad it is and how overwhelming it is that his whole life existence will be measured in the 10 seconds that he runs the 100 meters. And you know, what he says is he's most scared and frightful about is not losing, but winning, and then realizing that that was what life was all about. Versus Eric Little, who was a Christian who ran the 400 meters. And you see in the movie, it's very poignant, Eric Little's running the 400 meters and he runs in his crazy style, right? Like his head back like this. He just runs crazy. And he's running to the finish line and he's winning. And it pans right there. To, it's so rich. It pans to Abrams right there. And you see this look upon his face as he watches Eric Little. And he says, what does he have? What does he have? That he can run in such a way with abandon. Giving up another race to do this with love and joy and contentment. You see, Eric Little didn't, love, run, didn't live his life to win that race. He lived his life because he knew he was called out by God in his community. That he could go to China after winning that gold medal. And be a missionary for the rest of his life in China. Face persecution, being sent into an internment camp during World War II. And just revealed, I don't know if you know this, just four years ago it was revealed that the, the Japanese had bartered agreement with Great Britain to let Eric Little out of the Japanese camp in China during World War II. And Eric Little gave up his spot for a pregnant woman to return back to Great Britain. And he died just a few months later there. How could such a person who had won gold, had received the esteem of the world, say, I can face persecution, I can face strangeness, I can fa face exile, because he know this, he was no stranger. He was called out by God for a purpose and for a reason and for a hope greater than this world could ever give. That is a calling that can make you sustain anything that this world gives you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are gracious. You are good. You have called us out into your hope to be a part of your people, not because of anything we've done, but only because what you have done. That is such encouragement to me that you would love a sinner like myself. God, I pray that we would be that place, a church that talks about that calling that is united
to the Spirit and to the Son that has called us out of the strangeness of this world into eternal hope. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.